Uh, if you're new or joining us and you're visiting, uh, we're in the study of the Gospel of Mark. So if you've got your Bible, take that, open up there. We um, left off two weeks ago with Jesus feeding the 5,000. Remember, and, and we wrestled with the idea of where does our provision come from? We talked about the disciples where they said, well, why don't you send them into the towns? And they were looking for human ways to resolve the problem. And Jesus said, well, you give them something to eat. And they're like, what? You know, and they didn't know what to do with that. And, uh, and th- th- we talked about it's really easy to f- try and think of worldly solutions for heavenly things. But that doesn't work that way. And what Jesus was doing is trying to get them to get their eyes focused on him and keep their picture on him. Matter of fact, the end of the uh, illustration is kind of one great big object lesson, if you will, right? Uh, the end of the ob- ob- objective lesson was there were uh, 5,000 people fed, and there were how many baskets of food left over? 12, right? How many disciples? 12, right? Get a clue. Here's your basket. Look to me. I can provide. And uh, often we forget that. So this morning we're going to actually uh, double down on this theme of keeping. We, we ended with keep your eyes on him, right? Keep your eyes on him. Don't look to the world. Look to him and keep your eyes on him. We're going to look at that through another lens this morning. So let's pray and then we'll go through these, chap- or these verses together. Father, it's been a great weekend. Lots of fun. Lots of good things. We, we celebrate the good things in our country and the things that are of you and thank you for them. We're grateful, Lord, and we, we pray for change. We pray for powerful change. We pray for you. You know how to do that better than we do. Uh, and Lord, this morning, uh, as we're looking, we're going to look again at a storm and we're going to look at the issue of being distracted. We're going to look at the issue of keeping our focus on you. And we just want to open the service up that you would be have freedom, that you would be among us in your manifest presence, that you would uh, teach. You can teach way better than I can, and you can take things I'm saying and turn it into all kinds of conversations with people. And so you have the touch points, and I'll walk through your word, and, and we pray for a blessing in that. So we give that to you in your name. Amen. All right, so let's begin. We're in Mark chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 45. And it reads like this. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. So backdrop, let's go back up a little bit. He feeds the 5,000 people, right? They all get fed. They start to catch on that something's happening. They said, hey, we've seen this guy heal. We've seen this guy do this. Wow, he can do this. Let's make him king. And so kind of a messianic fervor arose in the crowd and they started getting amped up. If you've ever been in a crowd of 5,000 people and it started to get amped up, you kind of know what that looks, sounds like, right? The buzz is going, right? And, wow. and they, they decide they're going to take and make him king. And, and Jesus kind of breaks it up by doing two really clever things. Number one, he takes the disciples, who were the ones who distributed all the food, puts them in a boat, sends them that way. Then he calms the crowd down and takes them and sends them off that way. And then it says he goes up on a mountain by himself to pray. So it says he went up on the mountain to pray, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. When we're talking about Jesus praying, this is one of the three times recorded in Mark where Jesus actually goes away by himself to pray. We've, we've seen the first instance, that was when his ministry started and lots of people began crowding, that Jesus actually got up very early in the morning, 
went out, it says, into the wilderness and prayed. And when they all woke up, they being the disciples and the people in the house, they went looking for him. And they ran out and they're trying to find him. They say, hey, don't you realize everybody's looking for you? But we find that in that crisis moment, Jesus stopped, took time to pray. Now we find in this moment he's praying. And then the third episode is Gethsemane, right? Where he also prayed. Uh, but he's standing on shore looking out over the Sea of Galilee. And this would have given him a commanding view uh, of the lake. But there's a problem. It's nighttime. So how can the scripture say that Jesus could look out over the lake and see clearly where they were? Well, this is also Passover. And Passover is the time of the full moon. So this would have been a night where there was a full moon out and he would have been looking out over the water. Uh, I, I caught... Uh, a glimpse of this when we were in the Mediterranean in September, uh, there was a full moon. And it is unbelievable what you can see on the Mediterranean with a full moon. It's like daylight. I remember in the Midwest, uh, we used to drive, and uh, when there was snow and a full moon, you could just turn your car headlights off and just drive, right? And you could see as clearly as in the daytime, Rich is nodding his head because he's from Montana, did the same thing, and that's breaking the law. I want you to know. But... (laughs) (laughs) but we did it anyways. But so Jesus has ability to see these guys. And as he's looking out over the water, uh, he says, it says, it goes on to say this. It says, and he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and he meant to pass by them. But when he, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. So first things first, this is not a hallucination, okay? All 12 of these guys didn't have the same hallucination at the same time, right? They all had the same experience at the same time, and they see something, kind of looks like Jesus walking to them out on the water. Um, The other Gospels highlight the struggle of this moment. Uh, Matthew says the boat was beaten by the waves, so not this kind of, but bam, bam, right, kind of thing, John says the seas were rough. Uh, Mark says here they were making headway painfully. So you get the struggle of these guys who are in a boat. They know the sea well. They're rowing and they are going nowhere, right? They are just not making hardly any headway at all. I just want to point something out here. Uh, These are skilled fishermen. They've been on this lake all their life. They know this lake like the back of their hand. And lately, it has not gone well for them. If you remember, we were talking this story this morning, but remember the other storm that Jesus calmed? Hadn't gone well for them there either. And I just want to suggest something to us this morning is that uh, it's hard when you get humbled in an area of your strength. And by the way, God does that. Have you noticed? It's usually in the stuff you think you can do the best that often he will let you come against what I would call a painful time. And it's from Him. And it's designed to increase your dependence on Him and less of your dependence on yourself. Uh, Hopefully, as we get older, we learn that better. But not is always such the case. Okay? It's late at night. Uh, The Jewish reckoning of night had three watches in the night. The uh, Romans had four. All the Gospels follow the Roman uh, reckoning of that. So the fourth watch of the night would have been somewhere between three and six in the morning. Right? So we're talking late 
night, early morning where this is happening. And they see Jesus walking out to them and they cry out because they go, it's a ghost. And we kind of make fun of the disciples uh, about that. But just think about this. This is like a whole bunch of people who are college students and are cramming for exams, pulling an all-nighter. Anybody ever done that? Right? Jake, I'm looking at you, buddy. Right? And, right, you know how loopy you get when you do that? Right? Because you usually do a couple things that are really stupid. First of all, you didn't pay much attention the week before. Secondly, you ran and stayed up way too late than you should. Now you're cramming. Then you usually take, take caffeine or something so you will stay awake. And then you're just like this, right? And you can see really weird things at three in the morning when you do that. Uh, I, I've taken a number of trips across country because my family grew up in Wisconsin. So trips home and like, wow, three in the morning, if you're sleep deprived, you can get kind of wacky. And these guys, w- remember what they had been through. They were more than a, a little tired. Remember they had gone from casting out the demons, right, from that episode, and they came back there, but they had ex- ex- exerted a ton of energy doing that. They cast out, they came back, and the place was so chaotic, it said they didn't even have a place where they could get something to eat. So Jesus says what? hey, let's get in a boat, go away by a place by ourselves where we can get some rest. Well, they got in the boat, what happened? 5,000 people run through hill and dale across the Jordan River and get to the place before the boat gets there. They arrive, what's greeting them? 5,000 people. The disciples go, hey, send them into the towns, let's get rid of them. Jesus says, well, you give them something to eat. So now what? Now they are serving 5,000 people. Some of you this morning will serve as communion. It'll take you about three minutes. Okay? I want to suggest 5,000 people would take a bit longer, even if there's 12 of you. Right? And so they were working hard. They're carrying the food. They're handing the food out. If you've ever done that, you know that's hard work, right? And they're exhausted. Now they get put in a boat. They get sent in the boat. They're rowing their brains out going nowhere. The wind's kicking the snot out of them. They're not even sure the boat's going to make it. Jesus comes. They get in the boat. What time is it? It's three in the morning. When they see Jesus walking towards them, they're going, (laughs) Whoa! Okay? That was a little strong communion wine there. All right. What is that? It's Jesus. No. it's Right? They're just, they're kind of whacked out. And by the way, we almost take this story for granted. Oh yeah, Jesus strolled across the water. When's the last time you saw someone walking on water? As a normal thing. Right? We were just in, in the Chelan area this week with the Garris. We were having a kicking good time. I saw lots of stuff on the water. Okay? I saw all kinds of boats in the water of all different shorts, sorts and shapes. I saw all kinds of like sidus and, and things zipping around and going on the water. I saw all kinds of uh, paddle boards and, and I saw float tubes and I did not see one person walking on the water. Okay? I, lo- I saw a lot of stuff sink in the water, like me, right? right? I did not walk on water, I just went down in it and it was cold. Trust me. I was sitting there going, you know, we, we just kind of, you know, and, the, and it says also, this was not a calm lake. Like, you know, you see in the movies where they put a little glass and put two inches wide and the person walks across like, oh, they're not cool, right? No, no, the Sea of Galilee's deep. And it says these waves were kicking up. Uh, we were wakeboarding and, and you now have these new uh, boats that create a trough so you can surf behind them. 
But the problem is they create really big waves and and I was wakeboarding going along and all of a sudden we hit this rough water from these other boats. Man, I just went, gone, right? It's hard on rough water to ski or wakeboard, let alone walk on it, right? And it says, Jesus came to them walking on the water. And I want to suggest it's a signature imprint of his divine nature. It was designed to let him know he was God. And again, above the elements. And when they cried out, he immediately spoke to them and said, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, this is not like, you know, Abby, Kinsey, take heart. I'm your dad. Do not be afraid. Right? It's not like that, right? He's calling out to them over the rush of the wind. Hey, it's me. Hello. It's all good. Don't be afraid. Very similar to um, when, you know, like a parent is trying to calm a child. Do you ever have a, one of your kids wake up at night with a bad dream, right? And what, what do you say? You, you go, hey, it's, it's all right. I, I'm here. It's okay. Right? You, you calm them down. He was trying to get them to calm down because they were kind of freaking out. And as soon as he steps in the boat, the wind ceases again and it becomes calm. So this is twice now that Jesus has demonstrated his mastery over the elements. There's also something very interesting in here because it says he got into the boat and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They still didn't quite get it. Jesus was trying to show them, but it wasn't quite clicking. They weren't totally cued in that this was God. They knew he was doing some astounding things and they're trying to wrestle with, how do you pull that off? I don't know. Where did that stuff come from? Ah, like, you know, kind of thing. But there's something missing here in the story. Some of you have probably already gone there in your mind because you went, oh wait, there's another part to that story. What's the part that's missing? Well, it's not found in Mark's gospel. It's found in Matthew's gospel. And as soon as I put it up on the screen, you'll recognize it in Matthew 14. We have the same story, only when Jesus is out on the water and he says, hey, don't be afraid, it's I. Peter looks at him and says this, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And so Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, we don't know how far this is. All right? We don't know if this is 15 feet or 15 yards or you know, half a football field. We don't, we don't know the distance. But really, when you're thinking about walking on water, does it matter? Right? Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, this is an interesting spot because, yes, Peter sunk and, yes, Peter got distracted and got his eyes off the Lord, but Peter's the only one who got out of the boat. Why didn't Jesus say to the other 11, hey, what's wrong with you guys? At least he got out of the boat and tried, right? No, that's not what he says. He says, oh, you little faith. Why? Because this is Peter's interaction with Jesus. Do you ever notice when the Lord's talking to you, it really doesn't matter what the other people around you are doing? And he really, he's like, I I don't care about them right now. I'm talking to you. And he was looking at Peter and he said, come. And so Jesus is looking at Peter 
Peter's looking at Jesus. This is a Peter-Jesus moment. And he's saying, walk. And Peter starts walking. And Peter's like, how can you believe <laughs> Oh, storm, waves. Oh, right? Down he goes. Now you would think this account is found in the Gospel of Mark. Why? Because Peter's the one who gave Mark the material for Mark's Gospel. And so you'd think this would be in the Gospel of Mark, but it's not. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew, who, by the way, was also in the boat. Right? He was one of the twelve. And there's a lot of speculation. Well, how come it isn't recorded in more than one Gospel? Why did Matthew record it? You know, uh, it's not found in the Gospel of John. Uh, there, at the time, there was kind of a Peter cult, so some people say Peter was, or John was trying to downplay Peter's role a little bit uh, and to keep the Lord in primacy. Uh, some think that, you know, uh, Mark omitted it because the story made Peter look bad and Peter was his hero, so he didn't include it. Uh, nobody really knows for sure on this, but we know that Matthew uh, recorded it. And so not only did Jesus walk on the water, but so did Peter. But something in this struck me personally as really profound reading it through this time. And I, I know this has been preached a million times, right? And you've heard it a million times. Uh, but it's still worth mentioning. It's just easy to get our eyes focused on the storm around us rather than on the Jesus who's before us. Let me say that again. It's just really easy to get our eyes focused on the storm around us rather than on the Jesus who's before us. Peter believed, and he walked on water. And he was doing great as long as what? He kept his eyes on Jesus. But the instant he began to get distracted about the storm around him, he began to sink. And Jesus says to him, Why did you doubt? Why didn't you stay locked on me? Why didn't you follow all the way through? You had the Lord ever have that conversation with you? He has with me. We already know that from the accounts, the storm was intense, right? Strong winds, big waves. And we can get on Peter, but then the question comes back to us, how do we do when storms hit our lives? How do we do when the waves are big in our world and we are getting tossed around? Do we keep our eyes on Jesus or do we focus on the storm? And I have to admit that it's very easy for me to focus on the storm rather than Jesus. I'll do it so you don't have to, all right? I can get really distracted, especially in this uh, culture. And in my infinite wisdom, it's my uh, fallback position to inform Jesus about what he should be paying attention to. Any of you pray like that? Hey, Lord, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I just thought I'd bring it up so you'd be aware, right? And then I start thinking, well, wait a minute, who am I praying to here? That, that's not going to go over well, right? One of the great advantages of, of reading through the Bible, Jake and I were on vacation talking about reading through the Bible and what, what it does. And um, we were just having a, a great little conversation around the breakfast table. And, um, and by the way, this, I hope you're still reading with us and going through. And, and usually this is the time of year your whole schedule goes kablooey, right? Just 
right? You're on vacation. The, the work schedule's different. The school schedule's all different because the school schedule's all different. The house schedule's all different. And so, the, you know, the, the quiet time flies out the window, right? But I just want to encourage you, you still have tons of time. Just pick it back up and, and get reading again, start again. But um, the, one of the great advantages of reading through the Bible is that God can refresh ideas that you once knew and he can refocus them and show you new insights to them. It's kind of one of those, you know, I've read this a hundred times before. Whoa, where was that? I never saw that. Or, I knew that. Oh, I, and God's just reminding you. Remember this? Remember when we walked in this a long time ago? We need to come back to this. And um, it's just really powerful that way. And I don't, I don't think there's anyone who's been watching, uh, you know, our world, our culture, um, and what's going on that isn't concerned or even overwhelmed by it. I know in my role uh, that I have as the shepherd here, I can get really overwhelmed trying to figure out what's our next step, what do we do as a church, uh, because I feel a responsibility to shepherd us well. And so my tendency is to get distracted and look at the storms raging around in our culture instead of keeping my eyes on Jesus, who is the God who can still the storms. And God reminded me of two things that I knew. I, I've known these things for years. But two things I knew, but it kind of let slip off to the side. And I, like Peter, was more focused on the storms than on Jesus. And the Holy Spirit really encouraged me um, with two things um, that I mentioned. Both of them uh, are found in the book of Isaiah. And, and I just have to say, it is such a privilege to read through the book of Isaiah. It is just profound. And I found myself going through again, just being in awe. I was thinking through the time of history, Isaiah, who he was, what he was up against, what he had to say. I was just like, wow, just caught me uh, incredibly. But the first one is found, when it comes to storms in the culture, the first one is this is found in Isaiah 19. And this is a time uh, when Egypt was a super big threat to Israel, super scary like they were going to run him over at any minute. And God said this, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians. They will fight each against another, each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And then it says this, And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out, and I will confound their counsel. There are a lot of stories. If you read through the Bible, you remember there's a number of times where Israel was facing dire consequences, hugely outnumbered by vast armies that were coming and said, we're just going to take and wipe that thing off the map. Much like today. Very similar. And God acted on their behalf, and they never even had to fight the battle. There's these stories of where these vast armies started to have quarrels within themselves. Uh, think of Gideon. Think of Josiah. Think of, um, there's several stories where they came and they started infighting and they actually ended up wiping each other out so that when Israel came for the battle, all they had to do was go and pick up the plunder, pick up the loot, because it was all laying right on the ground. They didn't have to fight the battle because God fought the battle. And this example is Egypt. And it says here that the spirit, the, the phrase that caught my attention, the spirit of the Egyptians will be emptied out. 
that God can control that kind of stuff. He can control cultures. He can control storms. He can control. And if it is his will and his desire, he can pit them against each other and it will empty out and it will come to nothing. And I think back over the last 40 years, the things I saw that were big threats that came to nothing, right? Uh, I remember back in the 80s, uh, early 80s, and some of you remember this, full-page ads were taken out in the like Los Angeles Times and that, that the Antichrist was coming. Anybody remember those ads in the papers? Don't all pretend you're younger than me and you don't get it. Nice try, right? But they were taken out in their ads and everybody's like, oh, here it's the end times, oh, and it came to nothing. And the distinct sense everyone in the church had is the Lord did something. We don't know what he did, but he did something that clipped that thing and it came of nothing. That's what God is talking about here. That God can empty a movement of its power. Okay? And, and by the way, that can be taken in, in another way that God can empty our country of its power as well. So, I mean, there's a, double, a double-edged sword here in that, that deal. But that when it comes to storms, God can calm the storms. He can empty the spirit of the threat. And I went, wow, I need to remember that. Especially being the pastor, I need to remember that. And the second one, uh, it's found in my pegboard in my office. I have uh, quotes that I collect over the years and they've been significant to me. And this one's been on there for a long time. I don't know how long, but it's been on there for a long time. Uh, That pegboard goes way back to the early days of North Shore. And I don't know when I stuck this quote on there, but it was a long time ago because it had caught my attention then. And I was typing this first one out and I looked over and saw the second one went, Whoa, that's just like the first one. So this is found in Isaiah 41. It's the amplified version. And it reads like this. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not look around you in terror and be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen and harden you to difficulties. Yes, I will help you. Yes, I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. If you remember, both Isaiah and Jeremiah had very... uh, Difficult. I'm in Jeremiah right now and reading through and very difficult ministries, um, circumstances and times. And God basically says to both Isaiah and especially Jeremiah because he was a young guy, he said, you have a choice. If you obey my word, I will make you like a wall, like an impenetrable wall. I will harden you like flint and you will be a terror to them. But if you buckle and give in to them, I'm going to make them a terror to you. And so several places in Jeremiah, you find Jeremiah repenting and coming back to the Lord and and resolving to give the Lord's message again because there were places where he got a little bit scared and a little bit weak of heart on it. And then he uh, re-anchored himself. But God told both of them not to fear the people, but rather to fear him. And if they would do that, he would strengthen them or harden them. In other words, he would toughen them up. He would make them adequate for the type of storm that was coming their way. He would make them qualified for it. He would make them equal to the challenge. And it occurred to me as I was working on this message and what encouraged me was that whichever way it goes, whether God empties the power of a movement out or whether God strengthens us, hardens us to the challenge that's at hand, God is capable that Jesus is greater than the storm. That God, um, 
I lost my place here. Hang on. That God can empty out the spirit of a movement or make us equal to a time such as this. Like we were born for this moment. You ever heard that phrase? We're born for this time. We are born for now. We don't need to be 200 years ago in the good old days. By the way, the good old days weren't so good. Right? It's just because we aren't there. That's why they seem good. Right? Because you always remember the best parts of it. A lot of hard stuff back in the good old days. We ended, and so the idea is Jesus is greater than the storm. And the goal again is, so what's the lesson? What should have Peter done? He should have kept his eyes on Jesus. Forget the storm, look to him. What is our lesson? Keep our eyes on Jesus. What storms do you have in your life? I know you got them. You don't have to shout them out, but what storms distract you? What stuff gets you, gets your eyes off Jesus? It can be just distractions. Uh, we were at a place, I won't even mention where it was, but I never saw so many brand new pickup trucks in my life. Not just pickup, four-wheel drive, monster edition things like there's a brand new Ford, there's a brand new Chevy, there's a brand new Dodge, there's a brand new Jeep, there's a brand new, right? Boom, boom, and hundreds of them. I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. They have more money in their trucks than I do in my house, right? And then I looked at the boats and I went, wow. It was incredible. And then I looked at all the toys. And then I looked at the whole community and I thought, you know, these are people who once had their eyes on Jesus. And most of them don't anymore. And how do I know that? Because I know a lot of people who live there. And I went, wow, they've gotten distracted by a different kind of storm. Right? They've been distracted by what life gives, not what Jesus gives. You guys came this morning. Do you know you pleased the Lord because you came this morning? You said, you know what, Lord, it's worth it. It's worth coming to church. And when you do that, you bless God. Did, you, did you, the I thought occur to you, you can bless God and make him happy? Even you, Zeb, smiling on the inside. Yeah, there you go, showing up. Awesome. <laughs> you bless God when you show up on Sunday morning. We bless each other through the Spirit when we show up on, on Sunday morning. And, and God was saying here in these things, keep your eyes on me. Keep your eyes on Jesus. There, now, there's a verse that will make much more sense when we read it. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be what? Steadfast. Be immovable. That word immovable is the exact same spirit of the word that when Jesus or when God was talking to Jeremiah and said... Uh, I will harden you like Flint. I will make you an immovable wall. That's the same word. Be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that uh, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You bless the Lord. It's not in vain. There's stuff going on. God is working things. He's doing things. So the question is, what are your storms and how do you keep your eyes on Jesus in the midst of your storms? And hopefully you've got a track record where you've seen God bring you through several of them to go, you know what, I've learned that lesson. No matter how big the next storm looks, I need to keep my eyes on Him. Just keep doing what the Lord has asked you to do. I realized as I was wrestling on stuff, it's not my job to fix the culture. Matter of fact, this isn't my church. This is Jesus' church. I happen to have a role in it, right? And I realize it's his job. My job is to keep my eyes on him and do what he's asked me to do. Likewise, you don't have my role, 
But you have God-given things He's asked you to do. If I said, what's one or two of things the Lord has called you to? You would know what they are. I'm looking at a bunch of you and I can name them off in case you aren't sure. I'll help you. All right? But He's called you to things. How do you keep your eyes on Him in the midst of doing those things? That's an old, old lesson that never goes away. I'm going to ask the guys to... uh, Begin to serve us communion, uh, if you would. And I want to give us, I want us to leave this morning with a beautiful picture of that, all right? Of how we are covered when we keep our eyes on the Lord. And um, it's found in the next little section of Mark. If we go to verse 53, it says this When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gesineret and moored at the shore. So now the storm has ceased. They've come across the lake. It's probably morning. It's probably like anywhere between 6 and 8 in the morning, right, that early sunrise period, that they arrived at the shore. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Now, think about this again. Stop for just a second. How much sleep had they gotten? Very, very little, right? They've now probably gone 48 hours without sleep. How much had they eaten? Not very much. Uh, You don't get the idea that Jesus and the disciples ate very much because they were passing out the food. How much time did, how much downtime did they have to rest? None, right? They went from one crisis to another. They were exhausted out of their brains. Jesus was human too. And yet when he saw all these people coming and then bringing all these people, it says this about Jesus. It says, and wherever he came into villages, the cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he, they might even touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Jesus is exhausted, yet he's still ministering to people. You ever pray and you're, you're sitting there praying and something's important and then the thought comes to your head, you know, Jesus is not going to hear you. He's really busy. He's got a lot of stuff. And he's probably not going to pay any attention to your prayer, so you, it's probably better off that you just don't pray. You have that thought ever come into your head? Right? Jesus is just too busy. Jesus is too tired. And I want to suggest Jesus is never so tired that he won't listen to your concerns. He demonstrates that here in this passage. And as we come to communion, there's something else that is painted as a picture uh, that's a very, very... Beautiful picture. The, if we go on to verse 56, it says this, And wherever he came, in villages, the cities, countryside, they laid the sick in marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. Remember the story of the woman with the hemorrhage who came up and said, If I can just touch his garment, I'll be healed. And she did. And Jesus said, Hey, who touched me? Right? Because he realized power had gone out from him. Now, <clears throat> ben Russell just went, had the privilege to go to Israel. And when he came back, he uh, brought me a prayer shawl. Here's the cover for it. Right? Kind of cool. And uh, this is the actual prayer shawl. It looks like this. And this is called a tallit. All right? And these on the ends, these Tassels are called tazils, if you're Jewish, right? 
But these are the tassels that they were commanded to tie in the book of Deuteronomy. So if you want to know what this is all about, just go to the book of Deuteronomy and read about what God said about these and how they were supposed to make them and what they reminded. But they are remind them of the law and the laws that God had given them. Matter of fact, this morning Ben came down. He said, Steve, do you know in these corner ones, the ones with the blue threads, which really look kind of cool, he said that there are 613 knots in this thread. And he said to me, do you know why there's 613 knots? I said, that was the number of laws they had. He goes, yep. Said So every corner was to remind them to walk in the laws of the Lord that they knew the Lord had laid out for them. And so uh, when we're talking about the tassels here, we're talking about when they touched the fringe of his garment, they were talking about touching these tassels. They could just touch the tassels. Why? What did the tassels represent? They represented the law given from God and the power that came from God. And there's several pictures here that are really cool. One is, so it would have been worn like this. Now, I don't look very Jewish and I don't have my yarmulke on. So, all right. But you've got to take it for what it's worth. All right. And you would have a garment and this. And when Jesus was walking, this would flow behind and they were trying to touch the tassels. So when it says she reached out and touched his garment, she was touching his tassels. There's another picture that's a, a very uh, picture we're aware of. And Jesus says, hey, when you pray, don't pray out in public, but what? Go into your prayer closet and pray. And God who sees in secret will hear in secret. And this is used as a private prayer time. So if you went in your house, you would then pull this over your head like this, right? And you pull this together and this became your prayer closet where you could be alone with the Lord. It's not a bad idea, really, if you think about it. But there's a third one here that's really cool as we come to communion. On the inside of this, uh, there is Hebrew. Can you see that there? Hebrew stitched into the garment. And uh, it, it looks like this. This is what it would look like in English. Oh, let me go there, okay? This is what it looks like in English. So This is what it looks like in Hebrew. And... Uh, You've seen this before. You know this prayer. And you're going, I do? And I go, yes, you do. Those of us who went to Seder, remember Phil led us in this prayer. We said this prayer in Hebrew, even though we don't know Hebrew. But it's this prayer right here that says this. Blessed are you, O Lord, King of the universe, who has fulfilled all the law through Jesus the Messiah and has covered us in his righteousness or covered us in his garment. And the idea is is that Jesus' death on the cross, his broken body, his shed blood, has now become the garment that covers us. When God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees his son's righteousness. And that's why we encourage people to flee to Jesus because that's how your sin gets atoned for, how it gets covered is we also touch his garment and we are healed. We come to him because he's done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so in the picture of communion, the idea there is that we are covered. And how are we covered? Well, you know these symbols very well. And by the way, if you ever want to come and look at this, it'll be in my office. You're welcome to come up and take a peek. But... uh, What created that garment of righteousness? Well, it was what Jesus did for us on the cross. How are we covered by him? 
we're covered by him through what he's done. It says it's, it's like a garment of righteousness. We know that, what, his body was broken for us. His body was basically destroyed. It said it was absolutely unrecognizable the way they beat him up. It said he took the blows that were supposed to be ours. And Jesus says, later you'll understand what I did for you. And he says, when you do, then he says, eat this symbol in memory of me. The second one also points to keeping our eyes on Jesus, like we've been talking this morning. This is the symbol of the shed blood. We don't live in a culture that understands that. Most of us have not grown up on a farm. We've not been around blood or that kind of stuff. And so we're kind of e-squeamish, but we still understand that life's in the blood. That's why we have blood drives and people give blood because when someone has a surgery, they are given the gift of life. What is it? Packets of blood that keep them alive during the surgery. So Jesus shed his blood for our sin. And it says now that covers, it atones for our sin. And so Jesus, why keep our eyes on Jesus? Because he's the one who atones for our sin. He becomes our garment. Jesus says, drink this in memory of me. I hope you enjoyed that lesson and it was as good for you as it was for me. I loved putting that together this week. It meant a lot. The worship team is going to come up and they're going to lead us in worship with a song that will set the tone of this for the week of keep our eyes on him. Don't focus on the storm. Focus on him. And uh, that's a skill every Christian believer needs to learn. And it's a skill every Christian believer probably needs to relearn a number of times in their life. And some of you are older smiling at me right now realizing, yep, been there a couple times, right? So we got to relearn this together. But let's pray. Let's pray. Father, the idea that you cover us with your garment. You said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How many times did I want to gather you together under my garment, but you would not? Lord, we realize we have an incredible privilege to be brought in under your garment. It's almost unthinkable that you would set this up for us and that we would be protected by that. And therefore, Lord, we've been talking about the need to keep our eyes on you instead of the storm. I don't know what storms will come. I don't know what shape they'll take. I don't know what size they'll have. But I know this. You've commanded us that to keep our eyes on you. You will either dissipate the enemy and empty them out or you will make us strong according to the challenge at hand. Either way, we have to keep our eyes on you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would help us stay in the word, that you would help us stay focused on you, not get distracted by either bad things or good things that can take us really far away from you without realizing it. We give that to you this morning. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing you've done. Thank you for the pictures. And we, we pray this in gratefulness and ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll worship together.